Welcome back to podcast episode number three of Make Money Make Sense. I'm Megan Berry. And I'm Sarah Tobenheim. And today we are here with Corey Schwartzendruber. And Corey is a very critical piece to the Heartland Bank puzzle. Well, first I want to say I'm glad to be here, and uh, you guys are much too kind to me, but I am the IT director here at the bank, and so of course uh, that involves our entire network, um, you know, keeping uh, firewalls and all the computers safe. You know, I always make the joke that if, uh, you know, nobody's talking about IT, then you're doing your job. So, uh, you know, we're hoping that that's kind of happening with uh, with our staff here. So I've been in banking about 21 years, and I uh, started at uh, as a bookkeeper and a teller at a very small bank in southeast Nebraska. Worked my way up to, we had what was called an assistant cashier at the time, and then I've done a lot of different jobs as I've moved through my career. I've been a compliance officer, I've been the network administrator, uh, managed different uh, levels of the bank, and uh, eventually moving up to chief information officer, which is just another fancy way to say IT director. So I've been at Heartland for about a year. I think it's great that you have all the different levels of banking. What made you interested in going the technology route? You know, technology has always been very interesting to me. Um, when I was in college, I studied finance, but I also worked on a, a minor in um, information technology. And so, you know, how computers work and how different systems work has always been an interest to me. Um, we have been able to focus that here at the bank a little bit. It's kind of fun to see that come to fruition. A big part of your job is also keeping us safe in the bank internally, but also educating our customers about cybersecurity. We are seeing a lot of account takeover schemes, otherwise known as scams, becoming more and more sophisticated. So talk to us about what an account takeover scheme is in terms of banking and how do people gain access to somebody's bank account? It's a great question, Sarah. We um, we see it all the time, and there's a, a thousand different ways to do it. I thought I would bring up two that we that are more prominent for our uh, customer base, but. Um, what the scammer is trying to do is gain the confidence of the person um, so that they can get their online credentials and effectively steal their money. The two I'm going to bring up are tech support scams and romance scams. So the tech support scams, um, you know, you'll be working away at your computer and um, you'll maybe have a pop-up on the computer that says click this link or call this phone number because your uh, computer has a virus on it. An unsuspecting customer might do that. Uh, they will talk to a person, a very friendly person, that says they work for Microsoft or their antivirus company or something like that and uh, they can fix them up if they just let them into their computer. So the person will do that. Um, at that point, the scammer is in and they can do whatever they want to the computer. Um, they will tell the person that they have taken the virus off and uh, you know, for their services, they would like some money for that. So could the person sign into online banking and transfer the money for them? They're watching the person do that. They can, you know, they probably have a key logger on the computer and they will steal the credentials that way. Given that too, they also have access to the computer and signs in, they can, you know, manipulate that as they will. So we have uh, seen a situation, this was years ago at another bank, where the person signed in, they noticed that the checking account the person had um, was not, didn't have a lot of money, let's say a couple grand, but their savings account was sitting there with $100,000. And so they transferred, but the person wasn't looking, they transferred 90000 into the checking account and then told the person that they had accidentally did that transfer. The person now has the Microsoft's money and they would love for them to transfer 
transfer it back. So the person ended up losing about 85 grand on that. And you know, at that point, the money was gone. There was nothing we could do about it. So um, you know, that's one way they can get into the computer. One, you know, that's one very specific way. Um, the other scam I'd like to bring up is romance scams. So online dating has become very prevalent. Um, of course, I'm old enough where I it was it wasn't really a thing that we did back then. But <laughs> this scam kind of involves you know taking advantage of a lonely person. The scammer will come online with them and talk, and it'll be a, a drawn out thing. Generally speaking, there'll be professions of love, and they will ask for their online credentials. So they can deposit a check. There'll be some reason they need money. The person will then either send them the money and or we've seen it where they have logged into their online banking to deposit a fictitious check and then you know send that out. So there's a lot of different ways this can happen. Um, that's just two very specific examples but you know they're everywhere. So what kind of tips would you give someone when they're like getting emails about this or text messages or what are things that could maybe put red flags out there? Great question Megan. So I have three questions that I always tell folks to ask themselves when they get an email, phone call, or text from anybody. And you know, my wife always jokes that I've seen enough of this that I become jaded and suspicious of everything, but I said that's kind of the, the job. Mm-hmm. So um, the first question I would ask myself is, does this make sense? I'm just going to give you a for instance here. The IRS texts you and says you're back on your, you know, you're backdated on your taxes. They need to, they need to solve um, that as soon as they can. You look at it and say, well, okay, does the IRS ever going to, you know, get a hold of me via text for something like this? Of course, the answer to that is no. You know, they're generally going to send a certified letter or, you know, in, in touch with your account. So does this make sense? In that case, it wouldn't. Um, the other thing I'm just going to point out, too, is if the IRS is asking you to pay back taxes and gift cards, which, again, I have seen, um, that's always a scam as well. Uh, they're not going to ask for that. They need actual money. So that's just a good rule of thumb. If somebody is getting in touch with you and wants to give you money to buy gift cards, you know, a bunch of gift cards, that is that should always be a red flag in your mind that there's a scam happening and they are trying to defraud you. So just keep that in mind. The second question I would always ask, is this too good to be true? So we go back to that romance scam. You know, I don't consider myself the best looking guy in the world, but if I am out on a dating site and somebody has Heidi Klum's picture as their avatar and telling me that I'm the greatest thing ever, then, um, you know, that's going to be a red flag in my mind. That said, too, um, you know, if you haven't entered into a lottery but get a message that you have won the lottery, that is probably not going to be a real thing or an amazing money at making opportunity somebody's you know found your uh, information online and they really want to help you make $20,000 today that is not a thing that's going to be real most of the time so again playing on our greed they're playing on our you know loneliness that kind of thing so we just always want to you know make sure that we're looking at that with a suspicious eye one of the things that we see a lot is scammers will send a fraudulent amount of money or a check or something to uh, some of our users and then say, you know what, I sent you too much money. Go ahead and send me some back. Again, that is almost 100% guaranteed to be a fraud. So just keep those things in mind. The third question we're going to ask is, the person's contacting you, is this a normal request for them? So I'm going to tell you my favorite fraud story here. It happened in my family, actually. It was a Friday afternoon. I was working away at the bank I was currently working at, and I get a call from my grandma. And um, she said she kind of had this weird tone in her voice, and she didn't usually call me at work. So I always thought uh, I thought it was something was going on. And she said, "You know, I just got a call from somebody that said that they were you, and that you ha- you were in Lincoln, and uh, there was a car accident. The police had found drugs in the car, and that you were now in Lancaster County Jail, and that you needed three grand to bail you out." 
And she said, you know, I thought about this, Corey, and, and you're usually at work on Fridays. Why would you be up with drug dealers in Lincoln? And, um, you know, what, what's going on here? So my grandma had just enough of the devil in her to kind of have fun with it. So she started asking the guy a lot of pointed questions. What, why didn't you call your wife? Why didn't you call your lawyer? Why are you calling me? And the guy was very good. He had answers for everything. So eventually to get him off the phone, she said, look, I'm going to call the bank. We can get this wire sent. Everything's going to be good. Hangs up on him. Immediately calls me. Of course, we had a great laugh about that. I sent the, the story to the entire bank. Everybody thought it was funny. Um, but, you know, my grandma did the right thing there. You just need to make sure, you know, why would this person be contacting me? So again, the three questions we're going to ask on any email, text, or phone call is, does this make sense? Is it too good to be true? And is this a normal request from the person that's contacting you? It's when almost like common sense. Yeah, and I think they try to rush you too to get you all flustered. So if you do take that deep breath and really think through the questions you laid out, is helpful. It's a great point. Take it back to my grandma's story. You get sent to county jail like I've never been there, but you know, it's not what the guy was trying to tell her was that I was going to go to prison that afternoon if I didn't if he didn't get $3,000 and she you know, she knows the court system like we all do. That's not the way anything works. There's trials and you know, the attorneys have to be called and all that. So, you're absolutely right on that. They are trying to make you make a fast irrational decision um, that you know is ultimately going to cost you money. So kind of going back to your Microsoft explanation, I know for email, there's some emails that I even receive. They look legit. Mm -hmm. So what are some things like people can look at? Fantastic question. So what you're going to look for is spelling errors and grammar errors. Um, now, I will say the emails I've seen lately are getting better about that. But, you know, a lot of times you can tell that English is not their primary language. You're going to see links there that will, they can make links look like it's going to Microsoft.com, but if you hover your mouse over that link, you can see where it's actually going to go. And generally speaking, of course, it's not going to go there. A lot of times too, even on the most basic email software, the filtering is going to catch it and put a lot of this stuff into your junk mail folder. One of the things I would tell people is that junk mail folder, just clean it out, don't ever look at it. Um, for instance, I got a, a junk mail the other day that said my Apple ID had been locked. and for a second there, I thought to myself, did this actually happen? Um, but I noticed it was in the junk mail folder. It wasn't the general Apple email address. The picture wasn't quite right. I mean, it just, just really inspect those emails um, because, again, there's going to be something wrong with them. I mean, here at Heartland Bank, we, we train our staff a lot on spam emails because that is what we feel is, the, is one of our largest vulnerabilities, and it is the way with any company. So, yeah, the training that, that we receive here, you know, is very thorough. What happens if you do fall victim? What are your next steps? That's a great question. So. What you have to assume when you click that link is that the virus load has come and is on your computer right now. And so what I would suggest for everybody listening to this is find a, you know, find a computer person that can, you know, verify that your system doesn't have a virus on it. For the average household user, there might not be a situation like that. And what we generally find is when they click on the links, you know, once they figure out something's wrong, they'll call the bank and then say, you know, we'll verify what's that it's wrong and then 
they won't have anybody to go to. And that's the kind of relationship I think that is very important for every person is to have a you know have an expert in that field um, that you can call and say, okay, I think I may have a virus here. Can you just scan the computer and make sure it's okay? Or you know, not maybe just for viruses either. You know, computers crash all the time. It's just really nice to have one of those in place. Uh, actually, the compliance officer and I, uh, as well as the operations officer and I here at Heartland, had that talk one time to maybe start a list of the different um, companies that do that in our in our, our area here. Um, just because a lot of people are you know have questions about it, computer hardware and whatnot is kind of a difficult thing to find when you are not in a major city. So we just try to help them out as best we can. You know, password security is a very big thing, and you know, I think we all fall victim to this. We have a password that we know we can remember, and so we use it on every single website. And I'm just here to tell you that's not a great idea. Um, that's it too. Um, you know, I have a password that I've used it essentially since 2008, and I <laughs> really need to fix that. But you know, password length and password complexity are a, a thing that we teach at the bank here all the time. So the longer you can make it and remember it, the better it can be. So like. If if you go from a password that's eight characters to a password that's 12, your you know your security is just strengthened by that much more. Um, the other thing too that I have always told people is do not use words that you can find in a dictionary. Those are very easy to hack. So you know if you have an O in your password, make that a zero. Or if you have E's, replace them with threes, that kind of thing. <laughs> the other thing I, I can't stress enough is do not write the passwords down, put them on somewhere on your desk or on your keyboard. If you have a smartphone, there are plenty of apps out there that will store the password securely for you, um, and you know the, the phone's always with you. So that would be another thing that we definitely you know want to look at. So I know with our online banking, we do have the authenticator set up that you have to enter a password. What else are there's that we just have for our customers? Yeah, so uh, again, you, you, you kind of mentioned multi-factor authentication before, and you're going to notice that is becoming more and more prevalent in not just our industry, but everything. Um, and what that essentially is, um, you know, your user code and password, it, just using those, it's not a terribly secure situation. For multi-factor authentication, you're going to, you know, kind of what Megan mentioned, generally what will happen is you're going to put your user code and password in, you'll get texted or called to verify that, you know, that it's actually you. That is just a second layer that verifies that it's Sarah, Megan, or Corey, or whoever, and that you're actually trying to do that at this point. Um, you know, it, it takes some getting used to, but the system works really well, and I think our customers have really responded well to it. But again, it, it's just another layer of security. It makes these account takeover schemes that we just talked about a ton harder to do. On the business side, um, we have what we call Business Banker, um, and there are different levels of that. So if you have different access to the financial system, such as wires or ACH or whatever it may be, we give you a token that gives you a new password every 32 seconds. And so it's very hard to replicate, um, you know, it's very hard to hack, and uh, it generally works very well. So Corey, I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate here. Um, if it is so simple to hack or steal people's online banking credentials, is online and mobile banking safe? It's a, it's a very good question. So what I want everybody to understand is that our online and mobile banking uses state-of-the-art encryption. Um, a lot of people think hacking involves somebody sitting at a computer, breaking firewalls, you know, that kind of thing. You see it in the movies all the time. And I'm here to tell you that what we are generally seeing for as far as getting into different, you know, accesses and whatnot is 
they are going to try to scam the person, get them to give them the credentials, and go from there. So, um, you know, we always joke that the people are the weak link in any security program. Firewalls have rules, and think of them as robots. They are going to do what they're told to do, and it's really hard to get through that. A person, though, is a wild card. You can talk them into things. You can fool them, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, when we talk about is online and mobile banking secure, the back end of it is incredibly secure. What we need to work on as a, a society is to stop the human error part of it, try not to get fooled with it, that kind of thing. So it sounds like, yes, our program, online and, and mobile banking, is secure in itself. It's the customer and the person that makes it not secure. And so by using those tips that you mentioned earlier, asking those three questions, that's how we keep online and mobile banking safe. Absolutely, Sarah. We, we almost want to look at it like we're a team. You know, Heartland Bank and the customers, we, we need to be a fraud-busting team. And so our fraud department is, the ladies that work in that, they have almost 200 years of experience combined, and they think about fraud all day. <laughs> our people are first-rate, and that is the extra layer for me, Then um, that's what makes the difference, quite frankly. Going along the same lines of talking about mobile banking and the security, we're seeing a lot of payment programs like Zelle and, and Venmo. Talk to us about how we can keep ourselves safe when we're using Zelle. Zelle is a wonderful product. It is quick and it's effective, but at the end of the day, Anytime you get a request from Z for Zelle, you're going to look at it just like anything else. We're going to answer those requests. Does this make sense? Is it too good to be true? And is this a normal request for the person contacting me? Zelle is scoring the transactions. And so we can go into the Zelle portal and, you know, if somebody's having problems with it or feels like they're being defrauded, we can shut the whole thing down. You know, but again, timing is of the essence with anything we do here. Don't call us in five days. If you think you've been scammed, call quickly. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of times if we know right away, we can do more to help fight that scammer. Those questions that you listed out earlier are even more important when using programs like Zelle and Venmo because we are going to have a tougher time retaining that money for you. That's why timing is of the essence with anything that we do here, whether that be a wire, an ACH, a debit card transaction, or a Zelle transaction. The quicker we know about it, the quicker we can stop it, if, if there's any chance of that at all. Don't be embarrassed to call in. Don't be scared. Just call us and let us help you. On top of our mobile banking app, we also have some enhanced features that we just came out with that gives us more insight into how our cards are being used. It adds an even better layer of protection for our customers. Um, you can control your cards. Um, you can see exactly the transactions that you are spending. You can turn off cards. You can report lost and stolen cards really quickly. It also, Sarah kind of said, with tracking your spending, you can get notifications after you've ran your card. Also, there's like a budget thing in there that mm -hmm. will show you where you're spending your money, which is kind of scary. But again, <laughs> that's just an added feature that just allows you more visibility to your accounts. You know, we, we were so excited about that product um, because just of all the things you guys mentioned there, it gives the customer total control. And the tools are available to allow them to stop fraud as soon as it happens. Because again, like you mentioned, you can you can just shut your card off. You, you get one of those alerts that Megan mentioned that, you know, shows that you were, uh, 
you know, using an ATM in, uh, in New York City, you're here in Nebraska, you can shut that card off immediately and then work with us to get the money back. And I think it is important, you know, to understand too from a customer standpoint that, you know, there are so many regulations in place. Your debit card is very secure and, you know, you really should have confidence using that, especially if you use these tools. Well, Corey, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. This was, again, another great conversation to have. It's just a really good reminder to take a step back, make sure that these transactions and these alerts, emails, texts make sense. And that's how we make money make sense. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Corey, for everything. We will see you guys in the next episode.